0: Did you know that in just three minutes or less, you can get simple but helpful tips to keep you on track from managing your motivation, workload, and relationships to hosting and attending virtual events that keep you connected with your clients and colleagues? So check out Remarkably Remote on your favorite podcast platform or head to gotomeeting.com tips, T-I-P-S. Starkville, baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's inside the park,
1: home garage. Doug Gladville.
2: Mike Chad, his coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny Jason Stark <laughs> is against humanity. Take away the human <laughs> elements of Starkville. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs>
0: Your readings, and welcome to Starkville. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for the athletic. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, and distinguished former major leaguer, Doug Glanville. Hey, Doug, this is going to be a big, big show because the great Bob Costas will be joining us. (laughs) And that means there's a really important question I need you to ponder. Do you want me to yes. ask him where he stands on Field of Dreams or not?
2: Ooh, uh, that's that. I, I think our show would turn into a three-hour marathon, <laughs> uh, which may be necessary to settle things. But I think it's one of those things that you just can't settle, and that's the beauty of it.
0: So, in other words, you're you're, you're terrified how he yeah, might answer. Yeah, just, <laughs> I, I don't, I
2: don't want to have to call Bob Costas out. I don't. I don't know where he stands on this one, but I'm I'm always ready. Okay.
0: I do know, but well, I, I left that up to you. So I think we'll we'll we'll, we'll we will not go there.
2: Yeah, let's okay? not. Go We've there.
0: got way more important stuff to talk to Bob about. I want to talk to him about Michael Jordan, yep. uh, the new job that we just decided to give him, commissioner for a day, commissioner of baseball. But uh, before we do that. Uh, We need to check back with the vice principal of the Glanville School to see how things are going on campus, which I think it is still probably at your house, right? So, last week, you were grappling with a really big issue. Can your own son be accused of truancy when he's homeschooling in his own home? Uh, Any updates there?
2: Uh, well, I, I did send this out to the Twitterverse a, a little while back, and uh, I did get some creative advice from the Twitter followers. Uh, actually, just the Twitterverse. Uh, so some suggestions to handle uh, in school, uh, in school, in house truancy. Uh, I've heard uh, duct tape was one solution. Uh, <laughs> that someone said to post a no pepper, no playing pepper sign in in the spirit of baseball. Um, I like that. Uh, Ice cream was on the list, Uh, getting a puppy. So there was very creative parenting uh, strategies. Uh, uh, The call to fire me was not appropriate. I didn't think that was possible to fire myself as vice principal. But uh, so yeah, we are on a better trajectory, uh, I think with four kids and homeschooling them all (laughs) in different grades. Very interesting. Uh, I credit my wife who's handling the, the bulk of this. But I do chime in in my sort of hallway drive, you know, going down the hall uh, between the kitchen and the dining room to, uh, you know, add some insight from time to time. But uh, I think we're on a better track right now.
0: (laughs) Okay. Okay. So let me get this straight: the truancy crisis has been averted, or not? We're yes, we're
2: averted. But as everyone knows, this is hour to hour. Uh, and, um, <laughs> seeing what summer vacation will look like. Cause it's, we're not going to look any different than what we're doing now. It looks like so we'll, uh, we'll take it as it comes. I think we're in better shape right now though, at least today.
0: All right. All right. Before we bring in Bob Costas, uh, this is where we want to, again, thank all the people who have made our lives livable over the last eight weeks. That means the doctors, the nurses, the truck drivers, the postal workers, the grocers, so many others. Thank you to all of them. Uh, also, once again this week, just want to mention that the Starks gave to Feeding America, which is providing food to so many families in need right now. Uh, the work that Feeding America is doing these days is really important. So, And it's so desperately needed by so many people who are struggling. So if you're looking for some way to help, can't recommend feeding America more highly. Uh, in our family, we're also wearing masks now whenever we leave the house. Doug, I know that masks uh remain an important part of your world. I'd like to hear your thoughts on the uh, the the mask in modern American pandemic life.
2: Yeah, I mean I, I think even just being more an observer in terms of the creation of masks, as my wife is Kind of the sewing guru. I've, I've just seen so much of, first of all, the efficiency she finds fabric and, and is able to take shirts and create the straps from it. And I mean, just a a brilliant creative uh, endeavor, but obviously for such a great, great cause. And, and so I've learned a lot about pleated versus, you know, non pleated and all these different components on, on safety. And, and I think, you know, we have these experiences now where you go out and you have to think through almost every step of your mechanics. Uh, it's almost like retraining. Okay, when I go to the gas station, which isn't often these days, but uh, you know, thinking through of how you touch this and do that, it's, I mean, and so you figure over a long period of time approaching it uh, in this manner, What you're, you're curious what's going to change into your muscle memory. Uh, and in that regard, I think of baseball, learning a new swing after you get injured, all these things that take time. And we're in that right now. So uh, I really appreciate the the hands-on nature of what my wife is doing and supporting her and obviously our communities. And uh, and we're going to continue to think of, of great ways to do that. I'm inspired by your causes. And when Sean Doolittle was on talking about World Central Kitchen, uh, there's so many great causes out there as we continue to learn day to day how we can be most helpful.
0: Yeah, exactly right. For those who have not been listening to us over the last few weeks, uh Doug, your wife continues to sew masks out of whatever fabric she can find, correct?
2: Absolutely. Continuing and keeping it going.
0: That's a beautiful thing. You know, Doug, we're honored when anybody in the outside world wants to come visit us in Starkville. But we're especially honored this week because our guest is a legend. Bob Costas is a Broadcasting Hall of Famer, a Baseball Hall of Famer, and America's greatest living broadcaster as voted by a panel consisting of me. Uh, Little do you know, though, Doug.
1: You know, last I checked, I'm jumping in. I'm jumping in. Last I checked, (laughs) Vin Scully is still alive. (laughs) I'm declining the honor. Decline.
0: You just blocked your shot. (laughs) Yeah. We're going to have to have a non-Vin Scully division. You're right about that. (laughs) Okay, okay, then. Uh, One more thing. You don't even know this, Doug, but Bob believes that his greatest achievement ever is his Steph Curry-like shooting performance in a basketball game once upon a time in Syracuse, New York, against a team that included the pathetic (laughs) likes of me. Oh, what? (laughs) Bob, how many rainbow jumpers do you recall burying that night uh, when we played at halftime of an actual Syracuse hoop game?
1: Yeah, at least four or five from what would have been beyond the three-point line, uh, the college three-point line, maybe not the NBA three-point line. And I think what happened (laughs) at the beginning of the game, since I was the smallest guy on the court, nobody bothered to guard me, (laughs) but I could shoot. As long as someone didn't have a hand in my face, I could shoot. I once made 91 out of 100 free throws. Now, that's with somebody rebounding for you, so you're in rhythm and you're not tired. But I once made 91 out of 100 free throws when I was in high school. So at that point, I could shoot. And I guess there were probably 10,000 people at Manly Fieldhouse. It was halftime of the Syracuse game, as you said. And it was the WAER werewolves, the campus radio station, the (laughs) werewolves, versus your squad, Jason, the Daily Orange, which was the campus newspaper, the Daily Orange chickens and you would think that just based on the nicknames the wolves would have devoured the chickens (laughs) but in fact i don't think anybody except me scored for the wolves you guys beat us 20 to 12 but i had all 12. yeah i
0: I also scored in that game um very nice yeah but but enough about that
2: (laughs) (laughs) it'll be like the last dance part two will be like a part two of these (laughs) 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 there'll
0: be no dancing going on with this game uh Bob, I'm not sure if you heard about this, but there's some Michael Jordan programming going on. And somebody should probably yeah, let you in on this. You're moment. in it.
2: <laughs>
1: You're... <laughs> so I've heard. <laughs> so how how much yeah, of the I last mean, dance have great. you been watching? Uh, I haven't missed a single second of it. Uh, it is so well done. It really is captivating storytelling. The production values are first rate. I think it would have been... Uh, something that would have really uh, moved people, and people would have been talking about under any circumstances. But now, when we're so hungry for original programming of, programming of any kind, especially in this case, sports programming, it's all the more appreciated.
0: Yeah, I'm right there with you. I, I just, I can't wait <laughs> for it to come on, and I just, I'm, I'm just spellbound by every minute, and. I keep asking myself, why is that, right? What was it about this guy? Why were, we, see, why were he, we so mesmerized by Michael Jordan then? And it feels like we still are. And, and you know, I cover sports. I don't recall any baseball figure I've ever covered that we were this fascinated by. What, what What's your theory on what it was about
1: Jordan? Well, he checks every box. For example, you just want to talk about recent baseball history. Derek Jeter is a beloved and iconic figure. And he played on five Yankee World Championship teams. And almost every year that he played, they played in the postseason. But was Derek Jeter, with all due respect, first ballot Hall of Famer got all but one vote. But was Derek Jeter ever the greatest player of his time, let alone by acclamation the greatest player of all time? jordan checks every box the overwhelming consensus is that he's the greatest player of all time i've always felt you have to leave centers out of the argument i don't know how you compare Mm -hmm. jordan or magic or bird or anybody else to kareem or to wilt or the elite centers but for the purposes of this jordan is the greatest player of all time he played in an era before social media yes but right in the midst of the explosion in sports marketing and the kind of coverage of the Bulls and Jordan that you saw during the Olympics, the the Dream Team, the NBA on NBC, but before the corrosive elements of social media that seem to tarnish and diminish everybody, no matter how accomplished or admirable they may be. So he falls right into that perfect sweet spot. It's not just that he's great, but his team is great, primarily because of him but there's a a really interesting cast of characters around him, not just on his own team, but in the league itself. Think of all the marquee players in the league itself, many of whom would have won multi-championships. Sakeem managed while Jordan was away to win a couple, but many of whom would have won championships that they'd played in any other era, and Jordan just thwarted them. And then there's this, and it's no small thing, and I'm not saying this tongue-in-cheek. This is one of the handsomest guys you've ever seen. He's not so big that he seems unrelatable. Most of us aren't six 6 He's got a foot on me. But still, six six is different than 7 foot or different than 6'10 and really burly. Michael Jordan looks like a leading man. And he is the leading man. He was the leading man of that era in basketball and really in American sports. And he's the leading man of the last dance. He's so smart. He's so perceptive. And he's an interesting human being. There's much about him that's admirable, but he also has some interesting flaws that's just part of being a human being. So you've got a textured story here. It's not some two-dimensional thing. It's multi-dimensional. And at the center of it is a guy who's extraordinarily accomplished, extraordinarily attractive, and endlessly interesting, in part because even though his every move on the basketball court was chronicled, he hasn't done an authorized biography he doesn't do a zillion interviews. So there's still an element of mystery and distance, even in this era. And now we get a different kind of glimpse. You've got all those factors coming together. I can't think of anybody else that checks that many boxes. Yeah, and I don't know
0: about you, but I, I'm fascinated by greatness. You know what I mean? I, I just This is Michael Jordan explaining how he mm-hmm. did what he did, what made him great how he could just he could just will stuff to happen through the sheer force of his mind and his competitive spirit and like you just don't see that in baseball do you it just can't be done the way it was done by this guy in this sport in this moment in time
1: yeah you can't impose your will as readily uh in other sports obviously the greatest players have a great impact in any sport But in the sport that we have covered the most, Jason, baseball and the sport that Doug played, part of the appeal of baseball is that the game may come down to Francisco Cabrera. The game could come down to Al Weiss in the 1969 World Series. Don Larson could pitch a perfect game in the World Series. That's part of the quirkiness of it. Whereas in other sports, At the end of a Stanley Cup game, you're going to take your best line and you're going to make make them skate until they drop. You know, Montana was always looking for Jerry Rice. You're going to put the ball in Larry Bird's hand or or in Michael Jordan's hand at the end of a basketball game, but you can't will it, even though it seemed to happen a lot with Derek Jeter that he was always up in big spots. You can't say, well, I'm going to put Willie Mays up the bat right now. I'm going to put Hank Aaron up the bat right now. Uh, No, you're not. Because it's Johnny Logan's turn it back <laughs> right. it's Jim Davenport's turn it back, and we'll just see how that works out <laughs> yeah,
0: you know just one more along these lines. Has there ever been a time that America had this level of of obsession with any baseball player, like who would be the last guy Aaron Mays Mantle, Ted Williams?
1: Well, the babe. Well, you know, the Babe obviously is a mythical figure now, um, and maybe the, the distance created by uh, having, not, having to deal with none of the elements of modern media makes him e- an even more romantic and legendary figure. Uh, Hank Aaron, the nation was very interested in Aaron's pursuit of Babe Ruth and what he had to go through as a human being. Most of the nation, including most of white America, admired him and embraced him. But there was a sizable segment that didn't want anyone, let alone a black man in 1974, to break Babe Ruth's record. And so Hank Aaron isn't just a baseball hero. He's actually a civil rights icon. He's one of the most admirable people ever in sports. But the coverage wasn't the same. It happened to occur that the game in which he passed Ruth was on national TV on a Monday night on NBC, but just about everything he did wasn't chronicled the way it was for Michael Jordan. I guess you could talk about McGuire and Sosa in 1998, or Cal Ripken, the night he passed Lou Gehrig in 1995, but those were fleeting moments, and of course, uh, the home run records are now viewed differently, whether it's Bonds, McGuire, or Sosa, they're now viewed differently. With Jordan, it was sustained. It was sustained from North Carolina right into his entry in the NBA, even before he'd ever won a championship. He was already iconic and viewed by some as the best player in the game. Then you get the six titles. You get the dream team. You get the retirement and the return. You get an ending. Um, The last game in 1998, you know, Ted Williams hit a homer his last time at bat. Wasn't in the World Series. It didn't ch- turn defeat into victory. It wasn't on national television. There were 10,000 people or so at Fenway Park on a dark and dank day. <laughs> you know, the whole that game six and 98 against the Jazz is still the highest rated NBA game in history. So again, wow. it goes back to the first response I gave you. It's a perfect storm. You've got every element that could possibly contribute to somebody being a legendary figure. And on every one of those elements, Michael Jordan is a 10 on a 10 scale. Yeah. Yeah. I know
0: why he came back from the NBA, right? Because he lost a pickup game to Doug (laughs) Landry. Oh, yeah. Now, right, Doug? Doug?
2: I mean, to, yeah, it is true, and I'm always afraid to say it because I keep thinking he might pull up in my driveway and challenge me to uh, one-on-one basketball just to kind of quiet me down. So I'm like looking over my shoulder about admitting that. But I was I did play with Curtis Pride, Lyle Mouton. Also, those are really good basketball players, by the way, college. Uh, but I yes we we did win Francona talked about it a couple of weeks ago Uh, still afraid to admit it but it did happen and actually I have about three minutes of video so I do have some support so (laughs) I can say that
1: but Doug, it was, it was a three-on-three pickup game, no. or was it
2: just you and Jordan one-on-one? Oh, no, no, not, no, <laughs> no, 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 uh, It was five-on-five. Five. So when, when I played in the Arizona Fall League, I, I played against Jordan the entire year in 94. Double-A, uh, I was in the Southern League, and he was in Birmingham, I was in Orlando, and then I went to the Arizona Fall League. And as the Fall League went on, they started playing pickup basketball games at Scottsdale Community College, and it kind of grew from them practicing themselves to inviting pretty much anyone who wanted to create a team throughout the league. So we fielded a team and we caught lightning in a bottle one day to play against Jordan and Francona was on his team. And I think Francona said how he took the final shot and missed and then Curtis Pride ended up putting the winning shot in. Uh, But we actually did win by, I think, one point. And it's surreal. Wow. Uh, I don't know. Jordan was trying to pass. He was trying not to just take over, which, of course, he could have done. He trash-talked the whole game, saying, if you were wearing Reeboks, he would isolate you and embarrass you. he <laughs> talked talk about, this play I'm about to do, you can tell your grandkids. I mean, he was hilarious. <laughs> uh, so, the moment. But the thing the thing that strikes me that you mentioned, Bob, is uh, I when I look at this documentary, and I just think of competing against Jordan, Uh, There, every, probably every athlete says, I could have done more. You just feel like I could have done more. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what I would have given up because clearly it wouldn't some trade off. Uh, The only moment I think in baseball that I personally connect to that level of focus, drive, and intensity was when my my father was sick for three years uh, between Uh, 2000 and 2002 and the last game of the season he was in and out of the ER and and I had 998 hits going into the last game of the the O2 season and Carl Pavano was pitching in Florida and it was a day I woke up and I said this guy can't get me out and I, I just felt it and I believed I was in control and I don't remember ever having that feeling to that degree again uh, but I got three hits that day all in a row to get my thousandth hit. And my father passed away uh, the last game of the season that same day. Uh, so, you know, so it was just a, a moment of understanding, like the to be able to do that every single day, which is what seemed to be what Jordan was able to accomplish is it's unfathomable. And the way he motivated himself with all these little one liners and things. Uh, that that just speaks to how he figured out a way to internally create that fire. So I you know it's just it's it's a wonder of the world his his competitive drive. it almost could be classified as that,
1: yeah, and as uh, the last dance verifies, but we had heard it through the years, he didn't really need an actual insult or an actual challenge or slight. <laughs> he would create them last night, for example, as we're taping this on. Monday after episodes seven and eight uh, were shown on Sunday night, we learned that during the Seattle series in 96, in the finals, he and Ahmad Rashad are in the same restaurant as the Sonics coach, George Carl, with whom Jordan had a North Carolina connection. They weren't teammates. Carl was older, but they both played Tar Heels. And so Carl, mindful of the fact, that Jordan might try to buddy up to you and soften you up, Carl purposely doesn't acknowledge Jordan and Ahmad. And Jordan takes that as a slight. But if George Carl had come up and started to buddy up with them, he would have turned that into a slight too. (laughs) He would have said, well, he's he, he's trying to he's, he's trying to get close to me. He's trying to make me diminish my competitive. Power. It wouldn't make any difference what Carl did. Somehow Jordan was going to leave after paying the check that night. He was going to decide that George Carl had insulted him.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> There was no way around it.
0: Yeah, and this is what I mean about greatness and what great athletes can take to use for fuel. And Michael was just always looking for some – Fuel to get to that place. And, you know, Bobby just alluded to this, but, um, all right, Michael walking away from the Bulls after that incredible season. What is the baseball equivalent of that? Uh, You know, as I was watching – Sunday night, I decided I was going to try to figure out Hall of Fame players whose final game was in a World Series. Uh, I went through the expansion era. Here's the list. Pedro mm-hmm. with the 2009 Phillies lost. Uh, Kurt Schilling would join this list if he gets elected to the Hall of Fame, but not safe to say not the same thing, right? Jeff Bagwell only got to the plate one time, the 2005 World Series, because he was hurt. Uh, Willie Mays, 73 Mets, not this. Eddie Matthews, 1968 Tigers, definitely not this. And Sandy Koufax. So to me, the only thing that comes close is Koufax. Now, he retired after a World Series in which his team lost. So that's very different from Michael. But he was also – he was 30 years old. Yeah.
1: And, and he, lost, he lost his last start. He did. Partly because, you know, remember all World Series games were in the daytime right. then. And Willie Davis, who was a very good center fielder, lost some balls in the sun, committed three errors, which is hard to do for an outfielder, three errors in that game. And Koufax was beaten by a young Jim Palmer in his last Major League start. It was at Dodger Stadium. I think it was game two of that World Series because Koufax had to pitch the last day of the regular season to nail down um, the pennant for the Dodgers. And that was back in the day where you just went straight from winning the pennant to the world series. So he couldn't pitch game one. Drysdale pitched game one. Koufax pitched game two. And as it happened, the Orioles swept the Dodgers and Koufax never went back to the mound. So that game two at Dodger stadium, a loss to the Orioles was the end of it for Koufax. But Koufax did retire as the greatest pitcher in the game. Uh, It just wasn't the virtuoso World Series performance to end it on.
0: Right. I I think the similarity for me is, I mean, the last memory anybody has of Sandy Koufax is him pitching in the in the shadows in the World Series, the, 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 the black and white film footage you can still watch winning another Cy Young that year, and then never growing old, never fading away. If Michael had never come back, that would have been him, right?
1: Yeah, and I think what he did with the Washington Wizards, when if his name was Michael Jones, he was still a, a pretty darn good player. It wasn't like that he was a bad player or he was a star player, really, he just was many notches below the Michael Jordan we had known. But I really think in the mind's eye, and after next Sunday's episodes of The Last Dance, it really ended that day in June of 1998 in Salt Lake City. That's really the last image of of Michael Jordan. Yeah, no doubt. You know, there's one other name you could throw in there, but it's not in the NFL championship. Well, actually, it is now that I think of it, but they lost. Jim Brown and the Cleveland Browns. It's before the Super Bowl. This last year is 1965. They had won the NFL title uh, in 1964, speaking of the Cleveland Browns. Then they lost the Green Bay Packers in 1965. Paul Horning had a big game in the NFL title game. They weren't yet playing Super Bowls. And then Jim Brown, at the age of 30, I guess, walked away beyond dispute, the greatest running back. In NFL history, many people still think the greatest NFL player ever, but the stage was not as big.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, you know. One more thing that's occurred to me watching this: it's just it's not just a sports story. Uh, Tom, like Tom Brokaw, jets into Chicago to cover the <laughs> retirement press conference. Ted Koppel yep. was is in there. Jane Pauley, Connie Chung. <laughs> okay. So, yep. and I, you know, then they run through Michael coming back from baseball and unretiring and what a huge daily national story that was. It didn't just leave Sports Center; It led the nightly news. I think I can even remember you telling yeah. the story, right? You weren't even supposed to be at Michael's first game back, were you?
1: No. Uh, for whatever reason, I had that weekend off from the NBA on NBC. So I'm home in St. Louis. But then when it becomes clear that, Michael's going to play in this game. I don't even think that was supposed to be the game that NBC was going to televise. It was a Saturday afternoon game in Indianapolis. NBC decides we better show this. And so Dick Eversall calls me and says, you know, get from St. Louis to Indianapolis. We need you there. So I do. And we did a different kind of opening and uh, I, it's knocking around on YouTube somewhere, uh, the minute and a half or so what we call in television, the tease before we ever say anything live, uh, that brought it back. Um, And we had a sense that this at least had a chance to be something unprecedented. And then what Michael did, not so much that year when he didn't really have his legs and uh, Orlando knocked them out in the playoffs and went on to lose uh, to Hakeem Olajuwon and the Rockets in the final. Uh, But eventually, starting the next year, he strings together another three-peat. So (laughs) it turned out that what we speculated about that day in 1995 did happen. He did something that was completely unprecedented the way he came back and what he, he did uh, to even add to his legacy after coming back.
0: So if you hadn't been able to make it, would Tom Brokaw just have done play-by-play play in that game?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, Marv, Marv was there. But you know, that, the thing you're referring to from the last dance last night, where you see Brokaw uh, as part of kind of the gaggle of press people around this press conference, I was anchoring it back in New York. So I actually brought it on the air. Now think about this. There are probably some people out there, some little old ladies upset that their soap operas were interrupted <laughs> because it was a weekday afternoon. So I come on, blah, 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 set the thing up. Tom Brokaw's in Chicago. So the roles were reversed. I don't know oh why God. he was in Chicago and I was anchoring it for NBC news, but I threw it to Tom and then he and I went, went back and forth. And I think this will come out next Sunday because, uh I sat for an interview with them a few months ago, and this is one of the things we talked about. I had a sense in doing the play-by-play of that season, and so many of the games were Bulls games, and then, of course, throughout the playoffs, that's all that Doug Collins, Isaiah Thomas, and I did were Bulls games. I had a sense of just what you were talking about, that this wasn't a story confined to the sports pages, that ending the way it did, this is going to be a story for Time and Newsweek, and from the front pages of the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune and every other paper in the country, uh, that it wasn't just a sports story, that everybody was captivated by Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. So if you had an NBA Finals that was this close, that hotly contested, and ended in that dramatic a fashion, that's a big sports story no matter what, even if it doesn't involve a dynasty team. But it was obvious to me that this had long since transcended from being a sports story to being a huge American pop culture story. It was that going all the way back to the dream team in 92. It was that during the first repeat. And the second repeat, it's just in a different stratosphere. And you had to grasp it that way. If you were looking at it just as an X's and O's basketball story, you were missing the bigger story. Yeah. And
0: that's just so rare in our experience of covering sports. Hey, it's 25 years later. it still felt huge watching it on Sunday night. Yeah. And Bob, uh, mm-hmm. and
2: Bob just one quick question about with Jordan leaving for baseball, uh, what, what was your sort of coverage about the strike and its impact on what Jordan's story could have been after he left baseball? Because it sort of dropped and, you know, the idea of him potentially continuing in baseball. I mean, what was the sort of your positioning on that kind of coverage, uh, given that his baseball career got kind of cut short through labor dispute?
1: Yeah. Well, it's very possible that Jordan would have decided to come back at some point. But the situation in baseball sped the timetable up. There was no way that Jordan was going to cross a picket line. There was no way that he was going to participate in this misbegotten idea that the owners came up with uh, to play games that would count using replacement players. At the time, I I certainly wasn't alone, but at the time, uh, I was on the air saying, this is a terrible idea. The owners have some legitimate points. I'd always been on the players' side going back to Marvin Miller's days, but I thought by then the owners had some legitimate points, and maybe Don Fear and Gene Orza were too dug in and too intractable and too doctrinaire. But then the owners overreached uh, with the replacement player idea and some other missteps. And so you had to side with the players again. So anyway, Jordan wasn't gonna cross the line, uh, didn't know what effect that would have on baseball. And if he was leaning toward coming back, that just made it, maybe he was gonna wait until uh, the next season, the 95, 96 season. Uh, But that just sped up the timetable and he came back.
3: Hey, folks. Evil Mayor Cam here to tell you about our friends at Hydrant. Did you know that 75% of us are walking around every day chronically dehydrated? We are suffering needlessly from frequent headaches, energy slumps, and poor focus. It doesn't have to be this way. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day long. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced efficient hydration. There's no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydra.com and enter the promo code STARK at checkout. That's drinkhydra.com and enter the promo code STARK for 25% off your first order. Let's get back to the show.
0: So, so Bob, I have big news for you. By the powers vested in me, which are none, actually, (laughs) I'm hereby appointing you baseball commissioner for a
1: day. Uh, a job I've never wanted and a job that I would decline except in this virtual. Attitude.
0: <laughs> yeah. V- everything is virtual now, which is fortunate for all of us. So uh, we're, we're just going to allow you to guide baseball back from these strange, dark baseball less times. Here's my first mm-hmm. question. What kind of season would you propose now? If you were in charge, how many games, where would you play? Would you realign the divisions? Lead the way for everybody
1: now. Okay, let's assume gigantic if, but if they are able to do this safely and practically and no one in the general public has a legitimate reason to believe that privileged players and owners are jumping the queue in terms of testing or any other precautions that the public in no way is being shortchanged because of this, then obviously people will welcome baseball back. They'll welcome all sports back if and when they're able to be played. And they'll understand that, uh, that we're dealing with unique circumstances. They'll understand that they're playing without fans in the stands and they'll accept changes. If baseball wants to fiddle with a pitch clock with nobody on base, with electronic balls and strikes, uh, if they want to have and they're going to need to have expanded rosters because you're not going to play minor league baseball, so you're going to need a taxi squad in effect that I understand they're talking about that, AAA mm-hmm. guys who will work out with the team and um, maybe you'd have, I don't know, 40 or 50 of them on an expanded roster and maybe 30 would be eligible for each game, but you could move them on and off the active list. It makes perfect sense to play even though... Some of us, and I think, Jason, you're one of them, like the National League game and the strategy that it it brings to baseball. It makes no sense to play games without the DH under under these circumstances because injuries are going to be a big concern. And American League teams always worry in interleague games about uh, pitchers having to hit and run the bases. So National League games will be played with a DH. And I like the idea that they're floating. All of this, I'm stipulating again, this is if they're able to do it. But ideally, if they could play an 80-game season, which is half, 81 is actually technically half, if they could play an 80-game season and do what I think they're about to formally propose sometime this week, which is the American League East and National League East never until the postseason venture out of the Eastern time zone. Same thing for the AL Central and NL Central, and same thing for teams in the West. Um, So I guess that would just isolate the Rockies in the mountain time zone, but they'll (laughs) they'll figure out the one hour difference. And they play in their home ballparks, and this could possibly be your schedule. You got four teams besides yourself in your five-team division. So you play each of those four teams 10 times. That's 40 games. You play each of the five teams in the corresponding division in the other league, AL East to NL East. You play each of them eight times. That's 40 games. And there's 80. And you play, and people would accept it under these circumstances, you play one five-game series. When you go on the road, when the Yankees go to Baltimore, they play a five-game series in Baltimore. Orioles come to New York, they play a five-game series there. That would be especially helpful because you've got a few outliers, like the Rays and the Marlins are Eastern Division teams, but they're not bus rides uh, or, you know, they're they're further removed. You've got to fly. So you're not going to want to do it twice. So one four-game series, one five-game series takes care of it. Then you go into the postseason, and if you have to play playoff games and or World Series games in neutral warm weather sites or sites with domes, then I think people would accept that too.
0: Um, well, you know there is stuff obviously that could happen. I'll just here's an example: uh, the the Reds play in the NL Central, and yep. uh, so that you know there's there's quite a bit of travel anyway. But suppose for whatever reason it's not possible to play in Ohio, and then the Reds decide they need to relocate to their spring training headquarters in Arizona. All of a sudden, that geographically um, strategically designed schedule gets all out of whack. What, like, what happens if certain teams can't play in their home parks? How would you, commissioner for a day, resolve that?
1: Well, even think about this. The law or rule in Canada is if you reenter or enter for a first time, you have to be quarantined for 14 days. Right. So how do the Blue Jays play any road games? You might have to put the Blue Jays in some location in the United States and have them play it out. That would be what their home ballpark is. And the scenario you just presented where one team or other uh, has maybe a couple of guys come down with COVID-19, now you got to quarantine this whole team. Can you remove them from the schedule and still get the 80 games in, uh, that's why I stipulate with all of this, here's your plan, and it makes perfect sense on paper if everything goes right, but there's so many moving parts, so many dynamics to this, many that we can think of, dozens of them, and dozens more we haven't thought of, and what are the chances that everything goes perfectly, that nothing goes awry? But nothing we haven't anticipated takes place. If they can pull it off, great. I'm missing baseball, too. I'm missing sports in general, too. And if they play games and they want me to broadcast them, I'll broadcast them. But I I just think this is a high-wire act. And I don't know if they can make it from one side to the other without somebody falling
0: off. I agree. Do you think that there's a chance that baseball doesn't return at all this year?
1: A chance? Yeah. And there's also a chance that they return and then they have to stop again. I hope it doesn't happen. I think that playing 80 games, people would say, yeah, this is good. We get it. We understand it. They can try out some of the trial balloons that they've sent up and talked about over the last few years. Try them out. Even those that some of us may oppose, try them out. See if it proves us right or wrong. Uh, I think that people would accept it. if they're safely able to play.
2: And Bob, and speaking of the trial balloon, you you did mention a a rule shift of the idea of the DH in the national league. I mean, what other opportunities do you see in terms of adapting the rules? Because it's one thing about coming back and and, in the scenario that the game is able to return, then you start getting to the granular level of what do you want to do from a rule standpoint? So, Let's say the shift, for example, or instant replay. Do you see any other commissioner changes you'd like to make in some of the uh, sort of in-game
1: rule shifts? Well, I hadn't thought about the shift. There are some people who think that you could make a rule uh, that you have to have two fielders, minimum of two fielders, on either side of second base, which wouldn't preclude the kind of interesting strategy late in the game bottom of the ninth, extra innings, and Joe Madden or somebody decides they want to pull in an outfielder and you overload the infield, you just have to have two on either side of second base. And you could still sort of do a modified shift within that, but you couldn't shift all the way over. There are a lot of people who believe, and I guess there's some uh, statistical evidence to back this up, that that has, that has diminished offense other than the long ball. And more and more players, the launch angle has taken hold for a variety of other reasons. But one of the reasons is, hey, I can't hit it through the shift. I might as well try to hit it over the shift. And one of the things that is a concern isn't just pace of play and length of games. It's, and you guys know this very well, how many baseball plays are we seeing? When we get the three true outcomes, when there's so many strikeouts and then throw in walks and then throw in either... Home runs or long fly balls in pursuit of home runs, you're missing the ball in the gap. You're missing the hit and run. You're missing the ball in play where fielders make acrobatic plays. You're missing baseball stuff. You're missing triples. You're missing guys doing all the things that make baseball interesting and exciting. It's not that they don't exist at all, but we see less of it than we used to see. And so what's often good competitively. And all the advanced analytics tell the front offices and the managers that this is what helps us win ball games. What's best analytically isn't always what's best for baseball as an entertainment product. And the people on Park Avenue know that.
0: Yeah, we definitely need more guys running around those bases <laughs> and more of those plays yeah. that you just talked about, but I don't know how you could do that in this setting. Um, one thing I think, you are going to see, and that is some variation of the minor league extra inning rule where you'd start either the 10th yeah. or the 11th or whatever with a runner on second, nobody out. Would you be willing to try that
1: out, at least in the short haul? I'd be willing to try it out, but I hate it. Like I said, I try anything out now. Short of running the bases clockwise, try anything out now. But, I, you know, look. Think about think about if you have a rule, and this is, forgive me for uh, going off on a tangent here, but this is where the NFL is so blind. They carry the same overtime rule that they have in the regular season, and we understand why, into the postseason. Is there anything dumber than the postseason overtime rule in the NFL where everything's at stake? where nobody's going anywhere. You're not worried about the 4 o'clock game about to start while the 1 o'clock game continues. You have a league where they'll examine a play in the second quarter of a game between the Jaguars and the Titans in October from eight (laughs) different angles to decide by a millimeter whether the guy got the first down or not. But now we're in the Super Bowl. Let's have the Super Bowl inordinately influenced by the flip Of a freaking coin. And this isn't (laughs) theoretical. This isn't like, hey, we need a stop sign at this intersection before there's an accident. There have already been 10 five-car pileups at this intersection with the NFL. It's happened to Aaron Rodgers twice in the postseason. Never touched the ball in overtime. Tom Brady and the Patriots won a Super Bowl against the Falcons and a conference championship game against the Chiefs that way. What could be dumber than that? (laughs) All right. So so now, how does that relate to baseball? They're going to have a three-batter rule. They would have had a three-batter rule this year, even if it had been a normal season. Come out of the bullpen, you have to either finish the inning or face a minimum of three batters. And there might be a majority of fans who say, yeah, that makes sense because we don't like this parade of relievers. But now it's the seventh game of the World Series. Two men on. Left-handed pinch hitter comes up. You got a right-hander on the mound. The World Series on the line. Is there a single fan who thinks, eh, get it over with. I don't want to wait for someone to come out of the bullpen. You can't use your left-hander in this situation because of some rule that's designed to move things along in June? Are are you serious? And, and, And now we have a World Series game. All the tension of a World Series game, an extra-inning World Series game. Think of the last, I think, the last extra-inning, um it's not the last extra-inning World Series game, but the last game seven was in 1997 when the Marlins played the Indians and Edgar Renteria's hit in the 11th, won it. But think of game six in 2011, right. the Cardinals and the Rangers in St. Louis. It's eventually won on a David Freeze home run, I think, in the 11th. Yep. Okay, now you're talking about the World Series. Is anybody going to complain if a World Series game seven went 16 innings? You're going to start and put a guy on second base? <laughs> And start playing under weird, like video game rules (laughs) when this is the most dramatic and important moment of the entire season.
2: Well, we here at Starkville—that's
1: when these little things come back to bite you. Well,
2: we here at Starkville call that the magic double. That's what it's called when the (laughs) runner just just appears out (laughs) of the sky at second. Do you you know
0: that? You know there was a a perfect game in the minor leagues last year that the team lost (laughs) because of the X rating rule, right? (laughs) Um, Man on second, they, they, wild pitch, wild pitch. sacrifice wild. him to third and then no. the guy he had to sacrifice fly? No. Man on second, wild pitch, wild pitch. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, Nobody ever reached base. <laughs> yeah. It's, I believe that's what happened.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. So, We're yeah, not going to like that. No. Right. Well, by, I hope, by the I, way. As, yeah, go ahead.
0: No, I hope that they don't do that in the postseason. But, you you know, you mentioned expanding the postseason. You're the commissioner for a day. What would you do with a postseason in a season like this?
1: Well, what they're apparently going to do is implement something that they kind of tossed out there uh, this winter, which is expand the playoffs from five teams, three division winners plus two wild cards, to seven with three division winners and add two wild cards. You give the division winner with the best record a bye, and you throw the other two division winners in – with the four wild cards you have three best of three series all on the home field of the team with the better record and you let the division winners pick who they want to play and then they host those best of threes and then the 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 two winners from that emerge i got this right you need four to get the postseason yeah, so there's sure. I guess there's three there's three winners out of that, yeah, there's three winners. because you're playing yes. you got six teams involved, so the three winners then enter the division series along with the team that had the best record. there is there is a much, much better answer to this question. And I think that Jerry Reinsdorf gets credit for this, or at least I heard it, via Jerry Reinsdorf. Baseball wants to expand the postseason both because it will give even more teams and their fan bases a reason to be interested in the regular season and because they want more postseason inventory for television. But at the same time, baseball's got to recognize that it has a tradition of a long regular season. And that regular season not only has competitive meaning, it has drama, too, because winning the division means something. Now, if you're going to take two of the three division winners— I don't care about this season. This season's weird if they play it at all. And as I've said 10 times already, fans will accept almost anything. But in a real season, you're going to take two division winners and throw them in with four wild cards. Last year in the American League, three teams won 100 games. Two of them would be thrown in with four wild cards, one of whom conceivably could be a sub 500 team or barely over 500 and we all know this is baseball, not basketball or football. How many times during the course of a regular season does a team that's going to win its division, win 100 games, lose two out of three on its home field to a mediocre team? The answer is it happens all the time because it's baseball. Now, if a team is a wild card, even in the days of just one wild card, or now with two wild cards, they came in through the side door, even if they're a good team, they had a chance to win their division. They came in through the side door. So they should appropriately have a higher hill to climb. But what about the two division winners? That plan makes no sense to me because it diminishes the regular season and makes the postseason seem gimmicky. Now, as I continue this monologue, do you <laughs> want to hear the better plan? Of course. Oh yeah. Yes, yes you do. Here's the better <laughs> plan. Okay, here's the, here's the better plan. The, the three division winners sit and wait, but not for long. You do have four wild cards. They pair off. If you want to let the best wild card pick which team it wants to play, fine. But let's say for the purposes of this discussion, one plays four and two plays three on the home field of the higher-seeded wild card. Now you have two winners. Those two winners play on the home field of a higher-seeded team. These are one-game knockouts. They're not two out of three. So in very short order, you've eliminated those three teams. The wild card that emerges has to have won two games. They have to have gone 2-0. and oh. Now you've given television what it loves, elimination games, because every game is an elimination game. So you've given them that inventory. You haven't penalized the division winners. In fact, you've actually increased the importance of the regular season because the, the wild card round is now much more difficult than just one game. All the more reason to want to avoid that wild card round. And now you've made it appropriately even more difficult for the wild card team to go all the way. They have to win two games against two different teams. They have to go two and oh. They have to use their pitching staff through two games. And now that wild card survivor plays the division winner with the best record. But make the division series, if you want more postseason inventory, make the division series best out of seven instead of best out of five. Why should the first round, which by definition includes a wild card team and the third best division winner, why should that one be best out of five, most subs? subject to a fluky result, but then the LCS and the World Series are best out of seven. So now there's more postseason inventory for the networks. They're best of seven instead of best of five. And when the wild card plays the division winner with the best record, it's not 2-3-2, it's 2-2-3. So you're further disadvantaging the wild card and further advantaging the team that had the best record in the league. Meanwhile, the second and third best division winners play a standard best out of seven. And if the wild card advances to the LCS, then it's on equal footing. Um, it's a 2 3 2 situation at that point. So you've modernized. It takes longer to explain than it does to conceptualize, <laughs> but you've modernized. You've modernized by adding additional wild card teams and additional postseason games, but not at the expense of the importance of the regular season. You've actually increased. The importance of the regular season. You've actually given an additional tip of the cap to traditionalists, and for the meaning of baseball as distinct from other sports, you've you've great you've given greater respect to that. And at the same time, you've added the additional postseason inventory that the television wants, and you've involved more teams in their fan bases during the regular season with at least a chance to make it to the postseason. You've you've checked both boxes. You've modernized. And you've also honored tradition. There you have it. At no charge, Mr. Manfred, <laughs> take it and run with it. I, I like it. You're hired.
0: Have,
1: Doug, to, do you
2: like this? We have to brand it, though. We have to brand something, come up with a, a, a playoff. No, I, I do like it. And I, I like the idea of discussing the value of the longest season in sports, right? 162 games under normal circumstances. And I was always hesitant about diminishing that marathon in any way. I mean, you've you've done the heavy lift. <laughs> you've gotten there. And I, I think it needs to kind of continue to be underscored the importance of that long season. And And part of what you've expressed is there's a, there's a cultural component. It's one thing to figure out, as you mentioned, the analytics or the structural side. But then there's just a culture of years and years of having certain practices that become part of you know, what you carry forward. And 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 so I guess I'm curious. You know, this whole scenario may happen in front of no fans, right? Most likely, right? No fans, and and you know, Jay and I were talking about the expression of the game. And things that we've prioritized as a cultural norms that have shifted over time. And I'm curious what you think about how players will engage in that environment of no fans, even in these monumental celebrations. Do you see a little bit more bandwidth of, you know, whether it's bat flips or something culturally or also finding ways to bring back some of these elements that that have gone stolen bases, complete games, you know, bunts, hit and runs, contact hitters, all these things that are sort of very different in the modern era. Uh, So I am curious about that connection of the expression of the game and potentially doing so with no fans.
1: Yeah, Doug, you would know better than I or better than Jason because even though we've been around the game, we've never had that feeling outside of the Sandlot or high school or something or Little League, that feeling of having even a small crowd react to what we do. Uh, I think that in all sports when they return, uh, they will find that the absence of fans is even stranger than it is in their imagination. I think they all understand at some level this is going to be weird. I don't think they realize yet just how weird it's going to be when they touch one off down by three with the bases loaded in the bottom of the ninth, and it happens in silence, in a vacuum. And some of the energy, maybe baseball isn't the same as basketball, which is constant flow, and the fans are closer to you. But to some extent, in every sport, Players feed off the energy and the atmosphere of the arena or the stadium, and that's going to be just very much different. In terms of complete games, though, which you mentioned, Doug, I think we'll see even less of that because with the shortened spring training and the weird spring training taking place in something closer to summer, um, they're going to be even more concerned about injuries and babying pitchers. We we may not see a single complete game unless it's a no-hitter or a perfect game, may not see a single one uh, in 2021.
2: Yeah, I mean, do you think there's anything, you know, you mentioned, you spanned, like you mentioned, 40 years of seeing the game go through so many different evolutionary processes. Uh, is there anything that in the, even in the modern era you'd like to restore that you think is a big loss, given the opportunity to possibly shape that as we come back ultimately from where we are now?
1: I think what's been lost, unless I'm missing something here, what's been lost is something that isn't by rule. It's just now by practice. It's the hit and run. It's the stolen base. It's the complete game. There's a certain drama to watching a pitcher wipe his brow in the eighth or ninth inning, face a guy for the fourth time, thinking about what he struck him out on in the second inning, But what he doubled on in the fifth inning, and now he's facing him again, and knowing, by the way, if he's a veteran pitcher, in the second inning, that he expects to be facing this guy for a fourth time or a fifth time. So this at bat may be part of a larger plan. What am I going to show him here with two out and nobody on in the second inning, as opposed to what I would show him in the eighth inning with two out and two on in a one-run game? That whole chess game thing has been changed dramatically. I don't mean to sound like a get off my lawn guy. <laughs> Baseball in many ways has never been better. The athleticism of the players, uh, the quality of training, the understanding of the game. You know, someone like Ted Williams was just ahead of everybody. But now that gap would have been closed between Ted Williams and everybody else, or between Tony Gwynn and everybody else, because you have so much wherewithal to study and get better and sports specific training and nutrition and everything else. And I'm recognizing all of that, but some of the things that make for entertainment and drama have been squeezed out of the game. uh, Because as I mentioned earlier, new approaches, which may in fact add up to more wins over the course of a long season, don't necessarily add up uh, to more appealing baseball.
0: And the diminishment of the starting pitcher, and what that guy represents is one of my real frustrations about the way the game is played now. And I look, I really mm-hmm. admire the thinking inside the game, but we were just talking about Michael Jordan. What's the cool thing about going to see Michael Jordan play? He's going to hold the ball in his hands a hundred times. You know, the only That's person right. in baseball who gets to do that is the starting pitcher, and it's a loss yep. for the sport. If that guy is out of there in the fifth inning or the sixth inning or the well, second think, inning. Think,
1: you know, think about it. Not just when we were kids. When we first started covering the game and you're thinking, hey, it's it's going to be Tom Seaver when he was with the White Sox, let's say. Tom Seaver against Ron Guidry. That's what it says. Look at the probable pitchers. The White Sox are playing the Yankees. Tom Seaver versus Ron Guidry. Boy, I'm not going to miss that. Now, even if The probables indicate a matchup of all-star pitchers. You know that they're not hooking up in a 2-1 game, and they're both in there in the eighth or ninth inning. not going to happen that way.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Here's one last thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, This is a concern of mine. I don't know how many games they're going to wind up playing in this quote-unquote season. It looks like no more than 80 or 82. So the season won't be normal. The postseason won't be normal. How do you think that history will look back at what players and teams achieve in a season like this? I'll give you an example. I had somebody ask me, if the Indians win the World Series this year, did they still end their Mm -hmm. curse if it was only
1: an 80-game season? You almost don't want them to. You (laughs) almost don't want them to. You know, the Dodgers won the World Series in 81 when they played the split season. And Whitey Herzog is still steamed over the split season. The Cardinals (laughs) didn't win either half, but they did have the best overall record in their division for the year, and they're left out of the postseason. Now, nobody considers Tommy Lasorda and the Dodgers' World Series win in 81 to be illegitimate because they played enough of a season. Uh, In this case, and with no fans, and with uh, a reconfigured postseason format, and maybe a neutral site World Series, there, there have to be not just mental asterisks, there have to be actual asterisks all over <laughs> the notations in the book about the 2020 season, if there is one. And here's something, it's entirely possible that someone could hit 400 over 80 or 82 games. Does someone consider that yeah. the same thing? Here is a guy who wins the batting title, gets yeah. four hundred six. He did exactly the same thing as Ted Williams did in nineteen forty-one. I don't think anybody's buying that. You know, it would be a a cruel and perverse irony if the Astros win the World Series <laughs> under these circumstances.
2: Yeah, I was going to ask you that, Bob. I mean, your commissioner. How, how do you handle this? You know, because once the smoke clears and if games are played then it's going to go right to, wait a minute, what about the integrity of this game? Have we made adjustments from what happened in 2017 forward and the Red Sox and all these other questions? Uh, what do you do about that? And, and what do you think the impact is of, of returning without actually addressing that issue?
1: Well, one way to address it is this. There can be no technology, nothing electronic whatever they have now or they invent next week, nothing during the game itself. And that means J.D. Martinez and whomever else, you want to go back and check every at-bat and every pitch of your last at-bat before your next at-bat during the game. Sorry, can't do it. 99% of baseball history has not included that. You can use all the technology you want in preparation right up until the first pitch you can start combing over all of it right after the last pitch but during the game itself there's nothing but your naked eye and and what your baseball instincts tell you we all know that not only is it not prohibited it's good for you if you can do it by using your powers of observation to steal signs or gain that sort of advantage but not using technology and since there's going to be some technology with replay, they can lock that down by having it monitored more closely as they started to do uh, a year and a half ago and making sure that nobody has access to any of that except with a, dis- with a disputed play. You're not recording anything from the center field camera. None of that. Nobody in uniform has access to that period or has contact with anyone who has access to that. Eye in the sky, up in the press box, whatever it may be. You eliminate that and you take away the possibility of cheating. You're not going to change the hearts and minds of every single person in the game. People are going to look for edges. They always have. The best way to eliminate it or severely mitigate it is just to take all the technology away.
0: Boy, I don't know if we want to go down this corridor because it's a long one, but I actually think there's a middle ground here. Uh, I... I mean technology is just such a part of 21st century baseball. I don't know that it's possible to eliminate it. I, I think there's a compromise where you blur out the catcher's signals and nobody looking at the center field camera in-game gets to see them or something like that. Wouldn't that work just as well?
1: I guess. I guess <laughs> you're watching pixelated <laughs> baseball. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a sponsorship yeah, like, like opportunity. When, like
1: when a like when a streaker shows up at Wimbledon and <laughs> when we pixelate him or her.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, we'll have have to make just, clear what, what we're pixelating, Cal <laughs> <Right. laughs> Rip Kal Ripken, you know, had an old school idea. He said, "Look, if you think this is going on, just you know, you just have a wink and a nod between the catcher and the pitcher. Yep. The guys on second base, obvious curveball signal." <laughs> He passes it on to the hitter, and now you buzz him <laughs> right up under his chin with a high hard one. <laughs> In Cal's mind, that takes care of it right there. Yeah, I mean, it would,
2: don't it know would, if that's true, it would give you kind a, of
1: an old school response. It would it. give you a lot of pause
2: because you'd get, you'd create people, you'd be mad at your teammates. I thought you had the signs. You know what? I mean, it, it would definitely be effective. Uh, but yeah, just trying to match that modern component of just like you said, technology is everywhere. And it's, and it can be obviously useful in, in managing all the algorithms and all these structural, but, but to, to Bob's point about how the balance between analytics and then a, a enjoyable product. You know, it can't be all or nothing, right? You say, okay, well, this sliver of percentage is gonna allow me to do this, and that's why I do it. Well, that's why you won't steal third base ever, because most likely it's gonna cause you more harm if you get caught caught versus the benefit of what you gain if you make it. And once you start becoming odds makers on everything, uh you'll you'll lose the appetite of doing what actually we consider great is those moments of low probability, right? That's what actually gets us out of our chairs. So the low probability, and that's exciting. Uh, So I wonder with technology, you know, I learned under, came up under the system where players like Mark Gray said, look, I'm not stealing signs, but I do recognize in a day game that the catcher creates a certain shadow and that I can tell from that shadow where he's set up. That was genius. You know, I learned from that as a form of genius. And, right. and you could marry that with some level of technological preparation. But like you said, in the end game, you know, it's not the NFL where you have, you know, bird's eye and it's all formations and, you know, structure. And it's a, it's a very different game. So uh, I hope, I hope they figure it out sooner rather than later. Cause once these games are upon us, it's going to be the first uh, question on, on just the fair play and what they've done about it.
1: Yeah. It's interesting about sports in general. We know. And in the midst of this pandemic, uh, it's writ large. We know that life is not fair, that some people have advantages and others have disproportionate burdens. One of the reasons we like sports is that, for the most part, we view it as fair. It may not seem fair, and it isn't, to a fan in Kansas City that they can't hold their team together. And if the Yankees or Dodgers had a comparable team, they could hold it together or add to it. But once the game is played, once you start the game, we will argue over a call in any sport that's missed by a microsecond or a millimeter when we know that life itself is much much less fair and even and just than that, but we expect it in sports. So if we're talking about baseball, whatever advantage you can get by your own wits and your own powers of observation, If a guy is holding his hands out of the stretch just slightly differently, positioning his glove just slightly differently, when he's about to throw a breaking ball as opposed to a fastball, and somebody picks that up and you act upon it to gain an an edge, not only is that not unfair, that's great. That's part of what makes the game interesting and exciting and good for you. But if you're using technology and taking the human element out of it, then everybody reacts negatively to that. And while what the Astros did was very significant, and we all knew it was a significant breach of the rules, some of us were surprised by how overwhelmingly negative the reaction was, not just from fans, but from players around baseball. It took a long time. As you know, Doug, it took a long time for the players to step up and speak, out, speak up about the steroid era. Eventually, they did. And a combination of things, the congressional hearings and players putting pressure on fear and eventually the Players Association came around. It didn't take long at all after this this Astros thing for dozens and dozens of players to speak out. Now, part of that is because they've grown up in an era with social media and you don't hesitate to offer your every random thought on Twitter or Instagram, including what you had for lunch that day uh, and a lovely snapshot of your tuna salad (laughs) sandwich. But still... Um, You know, even factoring that in, the reaction to this, the public reaction to this from players is more immediate and more outspoken than any time during the steroid era that I recall. What do you think, Doug?
2: No, that's absolutely true. And I I wrote something recently for The Athletic about uh, being a member, you know, very involved executive subcommittee level uh, with the with evaluating the PED response, and it, it's kind of a regret I express in some forms, knowing that there, you know Im- uh, information was somewhat limited at different moments, but just not speaking more, as you said, proactively about it. And culturally, yes, the indoctrination is that you keep certain things in house, and you understand that for the integrity of the battle that you're about to face with ownership. But I think that the the lost opportunity was to taking a stand. And, and saying, okay, yes, we have to work this out from a collectively bargained standpoint and agree upon it. But we also still can take this position very firmly about how we categorically reject this, this, um, this form of, of cheating in the game. And I think that was a lost opportunity early on. And, mm-hmm. and now we see, yes, the, the, it, it was actually shocking to me initially because of that indoctrination of seeing players come out swinging on other players who are fellow constituents in the Union Players Association yep. uh, that you, you're always thinking about that next you know, battleground. So it was refreshing in a lot of ways. And I think an important opportunity to get players more involved in that. Uh, you know sort of so that they are on the front lines of these negotiations so that they can forge a fairer and more comprehensive solution to avoid this type of circumstance as much as possible in the future. that takes that sort of orchestration internally to stand for that proactively and i and I think we did miss that early on in the PED scandal and and uh and that was a loss that was definitely a loss
1: you know Jason, I thought at first. I understood what rob manford had to do he needed to grant the players immunity to get uh useful and candid testimony as he put together his report on the astros and the players association being as strong as it is if the players were subject to penalties uh they would have gotten nowhere so manfred did what he did and i thought he got a bit of a bad rap because a lot of people said well This is no deterrent at all. They fine the owner $5 million. But by the way, that was the maximum allowed under baseball's rules. They can change those rules if they want, but the $5 million fine was the maximum. They also took away two first-round and two second-round draft choices over two years. That's not insignificant. And you have to take into account the loss of prestige and the tarnished reputations of everybody within the organization, players included, And this kind of cheating is not the same thing as corking a bat or using PEDs. You can't have this kind of cheating without other people in the dugout and clubhouse knowing about it, including coaches and managers. A.J. Hinch acknowledged that he knew about it and wished he had done something more to stop it. So even without player penalties, no coach or manager is going to risk the fate going forward, the fate of Hinch, the fate of Cora, the fate of Beltron the fate of Jeff Lunow one of the brightest minds in the game, even if he rubbed some people the wrong way, what he accomplished was monumental and it 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 was paradigm shifting. And now he's out of the game at least for the time being and those accomplishments are tarnished. I thought even just what Manfred did was enough of a deterrent to get people in positions to stop it, to say this is never going to happen again under my watch. But I also thought, Jason, that in the next collective bargaining agreement, based on what Doug just said, that the players as a group are much more united, much more quickly about wanting to eradicate this Astros kind of cheating than they were during the height or depth of the PED era. It'd be naive to think there isn't PED use now, which is not as rampant and not as effective as it used to be. But since since you have this consensus, it seems, among the players, they ought to be able to sit down with Tony Clark and the players association and codify penalties, not just for managers, coaches, and front office people, but for players going forward for this kind of cheating. So I think that Manfred is kind of getting a bad rap in this because I think what he did was more effective than what people gave him credit for. And the stage has been set to put in place even more stringent rules.
0: Yeah. And I just wrote about this a week or so ago, Bob, and, um, that's going to happen. And it's not even going to – we're not going to have to wait for the next labor agreement. This is this is going to happen here in the next few weeks. There's going to be an agreement on in-game use of technology that uh, I would be really surprised if it doesn't include some kind of provision for disciplining players. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons that's going to happen is what you just said. Players – Want that now. We heard it from them loud and clear after the Astros. Now, it's been interesting. We haven't heard a peep from them since the Red Sox. But my point was, it's time for players to own the game. They told me, we know what cheating is. Okay, then. If you know it, if you know where to draw that line, feel free to draw it. Speak about it. Make sure everybody in the sport and everybody who cares about the sport knows where that line is and promise us you're not going to cross that line again. I think we're Mm -hmm. heading in that direction, and it's really important.
1: Yeah, you know, a lot of media members and maybe even a higher percentage of fans were disappointed that the Astros didn't have the trophy taken away or that the record book doesn't have an official indication, an asterisk is always the the word used, to indicate that the 2017 World Series was won uh, at least partially with the aid of cheating. I felt as if, look, everybody knows this. They've got a mental asterisk. The same way that they know that Barry Bond's career home run total, as great a player as he was on his natural merits, is not the same thing as Hank Aaron's. And that what Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa did is not the same thing as what great home run hitters of other eras did. And that for me was enough. But for many fans, it's not enough. Do you think that baseball should go back and, in a nod to that sentiment, make some sort of official sanction part of the record book?
0: You know, I'm actually not in favor of that. And I've uh, taken a lot of grief from people who disagree with me. But here's my stance on this. Once something happens, it's really hard to make it unhappen, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, That World Series happened. We saw it happen. The Astros had a parade. That parade (laughs) happened right after a hurricane. It meant something to a lot of people. Um, You could take the trophy away, but it is such a slippery slope. Because all right, where are we gonna stop once we start? You can say, all right, the the trophy gets taken away, but now are we gonna do what the NCAA did and they're gonna forfeit every game? Uh, are we gonna start changing stats? Uh, it's, I mean, a baseball season consists of hundreds of games, and it, it it's just difficult to make. The thing that happened unhappened. So I wouldn't do that. But you're commissioner for a day. I'm happy to let you change my mind. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, what I've taken to saying is if they decided that they wanted to put an official notation in the record book, it wouldn't bother me. But it also doesn't bother me to have it stay just the way it is. There's no asterisk next to Barry Bond 73 in a season or 762 in a career. And those numbers do not carry the kind of mystique that 406, which by the way isn't the record, is just the last person ever to do it is Ted Williams, or DiMaggio's 56 game hitting streak, or Roger Maris's 61, or Hank Aaron's 755, or Cy Young's 511 wins. It just does not carry the same mystique. And the proof is that most baseball fans don't even know 762. They sure as hell knew 714, and they knew 715 when Aaron hit it, and 755 when he ended on that number. So to me, it's okay. But I understand the sentiment that's, that's been expressed. And that sentiment, of course, is accelerated by being in a social media uh, era where everyone can weigh in, so millions of people have. Right.
0: We almost forgot the key to everything, which we stumbled upon a few minutes ago. Pixelation. Right. (laughs) We we don't need an asterisk. We just need
1: proper pixelation. (laughs) That's my story. I I wish. I wish they could have pixelated my pink eyes in Sochi. Oh
2: right.
0: <laughs> hey, that could be done. Right. Go
2: back. It should have been
0: done. We can have a pixel
2: <laughs> can you have a pixelated trophy? You know, like you hold it up and it's just blurry. I mean you could you could do that. It can have a lot of purposes. I, I appreciate that.
0: Yeah, pixelation. The key to life. We we now have we now have figured it out. The key to life is pixelation. So I want credit for Bob Costas, Doug Glanville and me for that uh hey i doug i think we need to free bob casas from <laughs> captivity here uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but i i do want to say something I, i've known bob forever he's the same warm caring down-to-earth guy now that he was before he was a legend even before we hired him as commissioner for a day and i don't know how many legends <laughs> i could say that about so bob thank you man thank you for everything thanks for spending so much time with us
2: Yeah, Bob. Anytime.
1: Absolutely. Doug, thank you too.
2: Yeah, thanks a lot. You've been a voice of baseball, you know, my life. So I uh, associate so many great moments with uh, the sound of your interpretation and uh, absolutely legendary. So I appreciate you sharing time here at Starkville and hopefully you'll come back soon.
1: Yeah, you Um, know, I I think I may have warned I may have warned the audience
0: out, so I'll come back eventually, but not next week. All right, fair enough. Right, pixelate, my friend. We'll see you soon. Okay, thanks, Bob. See ya. Bye. Wow, that was great. Uh, But, Doug, time now for one of our favorite parts of every podcast, listener trivia. And it's our way of involving you, our favorite listeners, in this show. And we'll tell you how that works momentarily. First, here comes this week's question comes from a guy named Jimmy Hawkins. His Twitter handle is jhawk26. He's got a fun but really tough question. Are you ready, Doug? I am ready for it. Bring it on. Yeah, we're ready to get this one wrong. Four members of the 500 Homer Club hit their first and last career home run for the same team. But... They did play for multiple teams in their career. Hmm. So this is a – I've been racking my brain over this one. I know one of the guys that it has to be is this guy. Let's have the mayor cue this up.
1: And the pitch to Junior on the way. Swing and a fly ball into deep right center field. That baby is going to be fly away. The old-time religion lives! Junior does it! My! Oh, my! Magic is back at least for a night!
0: Wow! Oh, man. Dave Niehaus, the late great. Oh, my God, that was so much fun hearing Dave Niehaus call a Ken Griffey Jr. homer. So uh, I'm sure that he's one of them. Uh, Willie McCovey, I am pretty sure, is another... Uh, I feel like Hank Aaron is right, but that I'm—I'm I'm sure I'm tricking myself. Mm. And then the last guy—I'm racking my brain here. Reggie Killabrew Eddie Murray. Uh, I could go way back in time. Yeah. Mel, Lott, Jimmy Fox. I—I I, I can't remember if Reggie ended his career in Oakland, but I'm—I'm I'm just going to guess Reggie. Doug, what do you got?
2: Uh, are we are we doing the two heads are better than one approach here? Because I could, I don't know. What I guess. We're doing.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I yeah. I, I mean, I have
2: Griffey. I was thinking McCovey. Um, yeah, Eddie Murray is a good one, uh, possibly because I I remember the story of leaning on the cage and Wayne Gomes and Desi Relifer were my teammates, and I think Wayne asked Desi, "Hey, you know, I, there's Eddie Murray right there. How come we didn't go over him in the meeting? His strategy meeting." And he was like, "Is, is he still playing?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, he's playing. Of course he's playing. Of course he had retired like two years earlier." So, um, so that was good a, scouting yeah, report there. Yeah. yeah. So, so I'll go Eddie just for that. Yeah, Reggie. Reggie sounds good. McCovey, Griffey, Murray, <laughs> Reggie. I mean, I could throw another so that we can cover our bases. But
0: I don't know. Yeah. Let's just bring the mayor in here and yeah. we'll find out what the heck happened. What's the answer to this, Mayor Cam?
3: Yeah, so the answer that I have here from Jayhawk is Reggie Jackson, which Mm -hmm. you were correct, guys. Uh, He hit 15 homers in his last year in 1987 with Oakland. Willie McCovey with the Giants. I know you guys were amusing over that. That is correct. Obviously, Ken Griffey Jr. is correct. All right, The sound bite right off the top. And then I have Sammy Sosa. Ooh. As the as the last member oh, of that, yep, that's and right. He went back 2007. to Texas Yep, nice. two thousand seven. Oh, yeah. He had uh, he actually had twenty one home runs yeah, in his age thirty eight seasons. Yeah,
0: he so. was in Baltimore. Yeah, that, that's a good one.
3: Great oh, question, there, by Jay is, Yeah,
0: yeah. Is there anybody on the podcast who played with Sammy Sosa? Let me think. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I get all the <laughs> trivia questions wrong when it pertains to me and my career. <laughs> that's
0: right. <laughs> so that's, you too. Yeah, you know, just a little <laughs> a plug here. I Doug, I understand you. Played in a little uh, home trivia game on the Marquee Network against my friend Brian Kenny. Is I had, that right,
2: I did. That was so much fun. But yeah, I, I was able to uh, compete with Brian Kenny in this nine inning trivia game. And I w- I'll say, I, I don't want to be spoiler alert here. So I will say, I represented Starkville very well, considering all our trivia practice. Uh, but I think it's airing on uh, Wednesday. Uh, of of this week so that would be what day is that May 13th Uh, it happens to be my wife's birthday so I should know that and uh, yeah 7 o'clock central time so uh, me against Brian Kenny I think it's touted as the Saber Matricians uh, Analytics Brain Trust or something like that so (laughs) we'll see how that went
0: All right. Well, good luck. Um, You haven't helped me out much in this trivia lately. (laughs) Not much at all. (laughs) At any rate, our one question winning streak is down the drain. (laughs) Uh, Nevertheless, whether we get these questions right or wrong, we always use the question to inspire a fun topic of conversation. So here's what I think we should do, Doug. Why don't we talk about active players who have only played with one team I'll take some guys who play 10 seasons or more with their original team, and I'll ask you real quickly if you think these guys will play their whole career for just that team. You don't need to give us a long explanation. Just tell me what you think.
2: Yeah, uh,
0: Yachty is 16 years of the Cardinals. Come to think of it, that's obvious. He's, he's going to finish there, right? So let's yeah. – should we just skip him?
2: Yeah, no, Yachty, right?
0: no doubt. He's Cardinals Cardinal okay. for life. Joey Vado. Thirteen years with the Reds. What do you think? Ooh, play for anybody else? Hmm. Too big contract. How many? <laughs> Hard to move it. Well,
2: yeah, exactly. How many years do you have left on that deal? Well, like, I don't have like in front of me, yeah. but it's
0: more than it's more than like two. I'll tell you that. Okay. Yeah, I,
2: I think he. I think he stays a Red. I mean, he's he's so intense, and it, I think he's just like the comfort of being in Cincinnati. And you know, I, I see him staying there.
0: Uh, I think he's going to finish his career with the Toronto Blue Jays. Just a hunch I've That's got. a good one. I like that. Uh, Freddie Freeman. Believe it or not, 10 years already in Atlanta. Yeah. He's only 30 years old. Uh, uh, I think he finishes his career with the Braves. Yeah,
2: he's just he's just a brave. You know, he came up. Uh, yeah, I, I think he's lifelong brave. He's going to kind of go down like Chipper, Chipper Jones.
0: Uh, it's, I, I, I'm in total agreement. Face of their team, just the kind of guy they keep there. Buster Posey, what do you think about him? I'm gonna say
2: no. I'm gonna say no. Um, Florida State guy, right? And you go to Florida. Yep. Yeah, he, he. Yeah, he seems like he's been under the radar, and it's kind of there's like a stalemate happening. And maybe just to kind of get a spark. And the fact that he could be like a Jason, uh, 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 what's it? Luke Roy? I was yeah, Luke Jonathan. Jonathan, Luke. Luke, I was like Jason Lucroy, Jonathan Lucroy style, <laughs> and just finish with that kind of contribution. That's why I see Posey. Uh, finishing it out.
0: Yes, you know the Giants used to make these decisions way more emotionally than they do now in the Farhan era. So yeah. I, I'm with you. I think he finishes his career, his career elsewhere. You mentioned he's a Florida guy. Rays still kicking themselves for not taking him in the draft that year. How about he finishes up as a Tampa Bay Ray? Duck? I
2: like it. That's good.
0: Yeah. All right. One more. Uh, here's a guy who. Like, amazingly enough, will play his 10th season this year, Mike Trout. Will Mike Trout ever play for another team besides the Angels? Yes. Really? I'm going to say yes. Really? Well, I... I, I, I got to say no. I mean, I... He's I, Mickey Mantle.
2: What's no. his... I mean, they, they've thrown the, the Brinks truck at him, but, you know, the championship's eluding him, and he's he's a Jersey guy. Uh, You know, whether it's New York Yankees, Phillies, something like that. I think he goes home and just does it just because it's something he just wants to do. You know, I, 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 especially if you're just, you know, you're not getting the championship. Joe Madden, you know, that could change things. I don't know, that know
0: Yeah, I'm going to say Trout does not finish yeah, as an angel. I see. So there's going to be an expansion team in Millville. Millville right, right, play for that team, and they'll take on all $400 million. There you go. You, probably you heard start it here first. You can probably Picks start his like own that. team. You can pay for his own
2: team, so <laughs> why not? <laughs> all
0: right, one quick Field of Dreams update before we go. Uh, that means just one more piece of evidence from me that Field of Dreams is not overrated as maintained by some people on this podcast. Um, Doug, you've heard of baseballism, right? Absolutely. They're great. Great. Yeah, one of my favorite sources for baseball t-shirts and apparel. What are they doing, Doug? I sent you this the other day. They're now selling Field of Dreams t-shirts, pal. You've got the players marching out of the cornfield on the front of the shirt. You've got the big people will come speech from James Earl Jones on the back of the shirt. So 31 years after the release of Field of Dreams – Baseballism is still selling new Field of Dreams T-shirts, and I mean that's today they're doing that. I want you to name any other baseball film that is true of Glanville. Name
2: one. Come on. I probably can't. I mean, the uh, in terms of iconic, yes. And Baseballism is what I call modern iconic fashion apparel. They're they're great, and so I will. I'll tip my cap, especially with the Field of Dreams game that they're still moving forward on, like finishing that stadium. So uh, yeah, I'm I, I, you know you can't touch Field Dreams for being iconic. Even if I debate the m- the movie <laughs> caliber level, whatever you want to call it, but I I I tip my cap and that was a just compelling just
0: concede, speech. Can that I'm winning this this yeah. whole debate. Well, concede, I, I have to I have to post.
2: Away. I might post the podcast with Jason. Uh, I keep I'm getting everybody's name wrong. Joe Paznaski Nanski's uh, uh, podcast with Nick Offerman when he appeared from Parks and Rec. Yeah, that that was that was a little hard on Field of Dreams. It was harder than I was, so I I think we could we could go there, but I'll, I'll just let the uh, our beautiful audience decide uh, on their own. But uh, iconic—that's the word I will continue to use. Field of Dreams is I, an iconic baseball
0: movie. I, I have a star witness. I'm saving up in case this wells up. Here. <laughs> just warning you, okay? So just careful. All right, folks, that's going to do it for this edition of Starkville. Uh, let's remind you again that Starkville is now available in its entirety. Absolutely free everywhere you get your podcasts. So be sure to subscribe to Starkville at the Apple Podcast Store or Spotify or TuneIn or wherever you can find us. And of course, one of those places is still at the Athletic app and the Athletic website. Uh, and if you'd like to read my work or Doug's work or the work of any of our amazing writers, There's no better sports writing being done in the world than you will find in The Athletic. We're now offering a 90-day free trial. So if you've thought about subscribing, you can try us out for the next three months. Just go to theathletic.com slash 90 free days. Also, remember, you too can be a part of this podcast. All you need to do is submit a trivia question. Duggan Island, get it wrong. Then we'll use your question to inspire a fun topic of conversation. Uh you can email us at Starkville at the athletic.com or you can tweet it at us. Doug, how would they tweet at you? Piece of cake, just my name
2: at Doug Glanville, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E.
0: Yep, and you can find me at Jason S T, Jason with a Y, J A Y S O N S T. Just remember to hashtag the questions, hashtag StarkvilleQS. Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Bob Costas for making us all a little smarter. Thanks to the mayor, Cam, for producing. And thanks to you all for listening. We'll see you next week on Starkville.